and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Bent Tree Church today. I'm glad that you're here. If I don't know you, if I've not met you before, I'd love to. I'll be outside after the gathering time today. And my name is Paul. <clears throat> Let's get our Bibles out. We're going to continue in our series titled "So That You May Believe." Well, if you're if you remember, we are in John chapter five. In the middle of that. If you want to turn to there, Jesus is teaching about himself here. And this new section of scripture, we're seeing Jesus is beginning to open up some deep stuff for us about who he truly is as both truly man and truly God. It's in this passage that we're about to read together that we find that Jesus claims five things about himself that are fundamental about understanding the character of Jesus. We call this the Christology or the Christ study. Last week we saw the first two of those things. This week we're we're only going to get to one uh, of the five claims Jesus makes because this is just so huge. But before we go any further, let's just remember those first two that we studied. Let's touch base on these for a moment. We won't go long, but along with remembering the doctrine of the Trinity is is the basis for this discussion. We saw this. Number one, Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his essence or being. Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his essence or being. And what we mean by that among the Trinity, or what we sometimes refer to as the Godhead, all three persons of that Trinity are equal in essence, but distinct in function of how they relate to each other and how they relate to us. Now, this is a huge claim Jesus is making right here. But the second claim is just as important. It's this. Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his works. Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his works. Now Jesus claims that he and God the Father are inextricably linked together in relationship and in being. And also, it infers then that Jesus has the ability to do anything that the Father wills him to do. Well, this week we're going to pick it up with number three. But first, let's all stand in reverence together. If you can, I'm going to read our text for today out loud. You listen carefully. John chapter 5, verse, starting with verse 15. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also even calling, was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do 
anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. And he will, also, he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom He wants. The Father is, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the word of God. You can have a seat there. Let me pray for our time together. Father God, we ask that you send your spirit into this place and into the heart's And minds hearing this, mine too, God, pour out your grace upon us now. Help us to understand what you want us to know. God, get rid of the stuff we think we understand that is not from you. God, we want to understand real truth today. Lord, we want to make much of you in our time. So we just treat this time as holy, this preaching with respect that it deserves because it's your words. It is in the name of Jesus Christ. We all prayed and said, amen, amen. Jesus is speaking to this large crowd, probably a few thousand. There are three groups that are represented in this crowd. Think about this. You've got his disciples talking about the 12, but probably a couple of hundred others that are traveling with him. You could also label them disciples, kind of going from city to city. But then the general public that's just showing up to see this guy that that they assume is kind of a, a prophet, just like the Old Testament This group of Jewish people is probably the largest group, probably a couple of thousand. Then the Group C is made up of Jewish religious leaders, and this is where the conflict is we've been seeing the last few weeks. I say religious leaders, but really these guys had serious clout in both the political world and really the economic world. They could make your life miserable, and then they're looking for an opportunity to kill Jesus. So let's pick it up in verse 21 here. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom He wants. This is a big one, and it may shake your view of who Jesus is in your mind. I just want to warn you, but these are the words of Jesus. So carefully compare what you have believed about Jesus with what it actually says in His Word today. Because, number three, here it is. Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his power and sovereignty. Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in power and sovereignty. You get what he's claiming? Think about the word power. That's somewhat easy to understand, right? We know God is all-powerful. Theologians simply use the word omnipotent or omnipotent, omni meaning all, potent meaning power. 
The sovereignty of God means his lordship or kingship or rule over everything in creation. In other words, his authority extends over everything. We talked about the sovereignty of God before. We're talking about how he governs, how he exercises his rule, and that nothing has control over him. R.C. Sproul says, uh, there's not a, a molecule in the universe that God does not have control over. Because if there was, he wouldn't be all-powerful. Correct? Nothing can make God do something. It's even in his name Yahweh, which literally means I am who I am. But we have to understand that because God is tri-personal, his sovereignty, his control is, is not some interpersonal mechanical thing like a machine. It's personal. He exercises sovereign power as a loving, personal, and gracious king. So Jesus claims in public to all these people that even in his power and his sovereignty, he is on par with God the Father to actually be able to raise the dead back to life. That's a huge claim. You should understand that both common sense and scripture hold to a very clear doctrine, and that is only God has the power to give life to the dead. Amen? And just like in the original creation of the world, when he brought life out of nothingness, he can bring dead people back to life. Amen? And no one else can do that. The dead person can't raise themselves back to life. Why? Because they're dead. They're dead. And, and, and hear me, there is no one else that can then raise someone else back to life. Except God. I'm talking physically dead here. But think about that. Death is the ultimate. Unavoidable law. That governs all of life in the universe. Thus raising the dead. Back to life. Is the ultimate power. That anyone could possess. Let's be clear. We're talking about physically dead people. Jesus is claiming that he can. Raise back to life. If he so chooses to. But listen. That's tinker toys. Compared to what he means. In this verse. Write this down. Jesus claims to have the power. To give spiritual life. To spiritually dead people. Jesus claims. To have power. To give spiritual life. To spiritually dead people. Now, just to be clear here, just a minute ago when we asked, can a physically dead person resurrect themselves and give themselves life? And we said, no. That power belongs only to God. The same is true with spiritually dead. But listen, Jesus is talking about something even bigger here, spiritual life in him. Someone who is dead spiritually doesn't have the ability simply to raise themselves to life spiritually. Why? Same reason. Because they're dead. Remember, we spent three, uh, no, we spent like six weeks in chapter three. I was going to say we spent three weeks there. But we spent like six weeks in chapter three of, of John. When Jesus is telling that Jewish teacher, Nicodemus, who wants to enter the kingdom of God... 
Jesus says, you can't do it on your own volition. Jesus said, to get into the kingdom of God, you must be born again. In other words, not something that you do, but spiritual life that has been given to you by Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit at the will of God the Father. Or how about back in John 4 when Jesus told the woman at the well uh, that promise. Do you remember that? He said, whoever drinks from this water that I will give him, Jesus promised, shall never thirst, but the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up for eternal life. Now, here's what I want you to know. Any preacher that tries to put Jesus only as God's representative has some serious bad doctrine going on in their head. Like way back in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, the prophet Elijah was praying for a boy to be raised back to life. So he prays this, 1 Kings 17 verse 21, second half of that verse. Lord my, Lord my God, please let this boy's life come into him again. So the Lord listened to Elijah and the boy's life came into him again and he lived. Look, Elijah has been God's representative. He asked God to work through him. But the difference with Jesus is that Jesus is claiming to actually be God, not God's representative. He didn't just act like God's representative He raised when he raised the dead. No, I mean, because he was God himself. Jesus can raise both the physically dead and more importantly, the spiritually dead. Look, at this is important. Look at this, verse 21. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom He wants. Don't miss that little sentence there. So the Son also gives life to whom He wants. The ESV translation says that the Son gives life to whom He will. The NASB translates that. The Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Are you tracking with what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that he raises the physically dead. And more importantly, the spiritually dead, he does that too. The ones he chooses. That's really important to understand because choosing is always indicative of a choice, isn't it? What we mean is that when you choose something, you're automatically at the same not choosing something else. Are, are you tracking there? Otherwise, you wouldn't call it a choice being made. If the Father is the source of life, then Jesus is also the source of life. Look at this. God the Father chooses when he gives life. And so does Jesus as the Son. God the Father chooses when he gives life, and so does Jesus as the Son. And just like in every aspect of their relationship, along with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, there's always a perfect unity, a perfect relationship, so that there's never any confusion, any disagreement going on among the members of the Trinity. So then the question comes up. How does Jesus make his choice in whom he raises from the dead spiritually or physically? Just for a moment, 
Let's jump ahead here to John chapter 6. Some of you are like, woohoo, we made it to John 6. Not yet, still a few months away. But we're just jumping ahead. John 6 verse 37, still Jesus. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now we'll eventually get to chapter 6. But this is one of those little sections of scripture that's like an anchor point that we can tie our doctrine to. As we study and come to grips with this, because this is foundational to who Jesus is and in turn how we relate to him. Our identity. All right, look at verse 37 again. What does it say in this section? John 6. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Now that's really, really good news, right? Isn't Jesus saying the Father institutes our salvation and he initiates that in choosing us, in giving us the Son, giving us to the Son as a gift? Doesn't it say that? Okay, and so everyone that he, God the Father, gives the Son will come to Jesus. Yes? Isn't that what it says? So get this down. Everyone the Father gives Jesus is the one that God the Father chose for salvation. Everyone the Father gives to Jesus is the one that God the Father chose for salvation. Amen. And on top of that, Jesus will not reject them. I love that. But then that begs the question, doesn't it? How does Jesus and and, and the Father make their choice in whom they raise back to life? It's a good question. We've hit this before. We'll hit it again many times. But let's make sure we get this down. It is that God the Father, before the beginning of creation and time, is it that Is it that God the Father, before creation and time, looks down kind of like a tunnel of history in the future and sees who will eventually believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and then he chooses who he he sees will choose him? The answer is a resounding no. In fact, it can't be. The reason that can't be the case is this. First, God never learned anything from us. He's all-knowing. It's not like we somehow said, hey, God, let me clue you in what you're going to do here. Second, it means that salvation would then be based on something we do, that we decided to believe. Like somehow we were smart enough to figure it out on our own, and therefore salvation is our work. That is completely against Scripture. Because we know salvation from start to finish is a work of God alone. Not us, only God. 
And third, scripture is also totally clear on this. Let me give you some examples. This is the Apostle Paul first, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Now we see that it's by grace, but through faith, and neither one of those are from us. They're both a gift from God, right? It says faith is a gift from God and not works. Now why is it important to understand that? Well, look at verse 9. So that no one can boast. We cannot claim that we saved ourselves, can we? And therefore, we can't boast since it wasn't us that made the decision. And the argument can be made sometimes that says, but Paul, it was my decision. My decision isn't a work. It's just a decision. But where that kind of thinking goes into the ditch is this way. I got saved simply because I was somehow able to figure it out when other people weren't as smart enough. And why I needed to believe I figured it out. Others didn't figure, figure it out. They perished. That kind of thinking leads right back to us earning our salvation because we were believers. God had to respond to us. Salvation is according to who God the Father chooses and that is made up um, to God's ultimate plan and goodness in what he desires. God's choosing who he chooses highlights his glorious, loving, merciful character and not anything about our own merit because we have none. Folks, for years, here's what I thought. And I preached, if I choose to believe in Jesus as my Savior and Lord, then he has to save me. Like somehow, until that point, God's hands were tied until I gave him, okay, okay, you can save me now. Billy Sunday, the evangelist in the early part of the last century would say, God votes for you, the devil votes against you, and you have the deciding vote. Ultimately, that is a very false statement. But it has some truth in it, and that's why it's so believable. We are responsible to believe, aren't we? Romans 1 says, we can see there is a God who created this world. So we don't have an excuse to not believe. What the Bible teaches us is that we have the ability, uh, that we have the ability to choose. What the Bible teaches us is that we have the ability to choose Jesus as our Lord and Savior only after God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, resurrects us from spiritual death. He gives us the gift of saving faith and a new heart that desires a relationship with God. We call that what Jesus is describing who he is in John 5 and John 6, sovereign election. Write this down. This is so important you understand this. Sovereign election. 
the doctrine that God's rescuing and resurrecting sinners from spiritual death is entirely due to his own will and good pleasure. Sovereign election, the doctrine that God's rescuing and resurrecting sinners is entirely due to his own will and good pleasure. Now, how do we know this doctrine is true according to Scripture? Well, let's look at some Scripture, shall we? The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. I put the red in here so you'd know what it's talking about. For he, God the Father, chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He, God the Father, predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to, look, the good pleasure of his will. Whose will is this referring to? God's, Jesus's. Is it our will that this is referring to? Is this human will? No, it can't be. Why? Because it says it's not. Not according to Scripture. This is clearly talking about God, the Father's will here. Now here's what we've got to understand. Salvation doesn't happen because of the actions we take or the decisions that we make. Listen to how the Apostle John now explains who and how salvation is initiated by. You'll remember this from the very start. John chapter 1 verse 11 through 13. He, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. Because scripture teaches that we are all spiritually dead. The apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.1, listen to this. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, that would be Satan, The spirit now working in the disobedient. Before we're born again, spiritually speaking, we are simply incapable of doing anything or making any kind of decision to change that fact. We're spiritually dead. Dead, dead, dead. Before we were born again, spiritually speaking here, we are incapable of doing anything or making any decisions to change that fact. And since we are dead and will not turn towards God on our own, instead, the beautiful part of this doctrine, it is God who elects the believer to salvation and life. Remember, We read this not too long ago. It describes the golden chain of our salvation, meaning the order of our salvation. Look at this. Romans 8, 28 through 30. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. 
And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now this is really, really good news. And it becomes even more meaningful and powerful when we start to realize that God chooses solely based on his grace and not our works or how good we are or a decision that we made. Look at this. God chooses solely based on his grace and purpose, not our works or decision we make beforehand. He doesn't look through the tunnel of time and go, well, they'll like me, so I'll like them. That's a false God. God chooses solely based on his grace and purpose, not our works or decision we make beforehand. And and like the apostle John says, now listen to the apostle Paul explain it to us this way. Second Timothy chapter one, verse nine. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now the holy calling Paul is referring to here is God's sovereign election, or some have called it his unconditional election. There's no condition. He just says, I want you. And you say, but Paul, I chose to follow Jesus. And I'd say, me too, me too. Praise God, I chose to follow Jesus when I was eight years old on the front porch of my parents' house with my brother Ted as he prayed with me to receive Christ. And if you're saved right now, you chose Jesus. But you did that because he brought you to life first spiritually so that you could make the choice. Look, 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 look. Here's what we see in Jesus' claim in John 5, and we'll see it more in John 6. This is gonna blow our minds. We chose him, yes, But we chose him because he first chose us. Or in other words, when we had been born again and raised to life spiritually, we in turn placed our faith in Jesus. I want us to understand here. There's a difference between regeneration and conversion. Stay with me. Regeneration, being born again, is in accordance with his sovereign grace and purpose of God. He calls us from death to life. Regeneration, being born again, happens at the subconscious level. We're not even conscious of it. But think about it. How much do you remember of your physical birth? Praise God, nothing. You know what I'm saying? It's the same thing with being born again. Conversion is different. We do remember it. Here, write this down. See if this makes sense. Conversion is us deciding to believe in Jesus, but only happens after we're born again and given the gift of faith to believe. Like a little kid that realizes, that's my mom and dad. How old are they? Ah, two, three, I don't know. Wasn't at the moment of birth, you slap them on the bottom. They didn't go, hey, I decided to be born, here I am. We have to understand that our dead heart of stone is replaced by a heart of flesh that then desires the things of God. Conversion happens at the conscious level. For some, regeneration and conversion do happen, boom, in an instant, but not necessarily. Think about this. For some, there's a period of time between regeneration and conversion. The Apostle Paul, on the other hand, is an example where they happened in an instant. 
He was converted before he hit the ground with his encounter with the risen Lord and Savior, right? He was regenerated at the subconscious level and immediately became aware at the conscious level that he needed to follow Jesus. On the other hand, sometimes there's a long time between those two events. For example, the guy that wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, John Newton. Ever heard of him? That's a case of a long time in between regeneration and conversion. Years! Regenerated early in life, but his conversion was after hitting rock bottom in the slave trade. People get regeneration or what sometimes is referred to as being born again confused with conversion all the time. Here's what the theologian R.C. Sproul said about the difference between the two. Look at this. Regeneration is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, as he supernaturally and immediately changes the disposition of the soul from spiritual death to spiritual life. Conversion is a result of regeneration. When we are converted, we turned, we're turned around and we move in a different direction. For a new believer in Christ Jesus, someone who is just starting their journey of following Jesus as their Lord and Savior, it initially appears to us that we chose Jesus first and then we were born again. But once we have grown in our faith, we realize that can't be true. We realize that Jesus chose us First, and it brought us to life in him spiritually. By the way, did you catch when the choosing takes place? Did you catch that? Before creation. God chose us and gave us as a gift to Jesus. And then it is Jesus that redeemed us and gave his, his life to us by dying on the cross and then being raised from the dead. Proving that Jesus is in fact God. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. In the, is, is this just blowing your mind? That Jesus, who Jesus claims to be, how the Godhead kind of works in this perfect dance, this perfect step to secure our salvation. Well, we're not done. We've only hit three out of five that Jesus teaches his here in John 5. These big, bold claims that Jesus is making about himself. No wonder they're trying to kill him. I mean, think about it. Today, we've seen Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his person, equal with God the Father in his works. And number three, Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father now in his power and his sovereignty. And it is that power and it's that sovereignty that Jesus has both the power and the freedom to choose who he wants to bring to life out of the guilty, out of the dead, who he wants to raise from the dead spiritually, physically, and even the means and the timing of how and when that will happen. Now let me point out something to you that I find very comforting about the doctrines of grace we find in Reformed doctrines. 
If you believe in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you now have salvation for eternity. It cannot be lost. Why? Well, because you didn't earn it. It wasn't you who initially made the decision to be called of God. It was God's. Pastor Jeff has this saying. He he likes to say this. He says, you can't ever let God down because you were never holding him up. Now, the reason that is so, so very comforting to me is that I still wrestle with sin and doubt. And folks, I'm pretty flaky at some times in my life. We call those daytimes <laughs> and nighttimes. How about you? Any flaky Christians out there? Anybody wrestle with doubt? How about sin? Temptation? If you believe God didn't save you because you chose him, he saved you because he chose you, even knowing all your sin, knowing all your screw-ups, all your doubts, not just in the past, not just now, in the future. And if God saved you because it was his sovereign choice to do so, listen to me, your salvation rests in him. Your salvation is eternal because he's eternal. We call this the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. I, I want you to get this. This is so comforting to me. It means that once a person is truly saved, this salvation is eternally secure because of God. Water break. Y'all write that down. Perseverance of the saint. Means that once a person is truly saved, this salvation is eternally secure because of God. Some people call this preservation of the saints. If you're saved, if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, listen to me, your salvation is based on God's faithfulness, not yours. Listen carefully carefully to me, Christian. If you could have lost your salvation, you would have. Long time ago. When Jesus was speaking about those that God the Father had given him before the creation of the world, he said this in John 10, 27. So comforting. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of, my, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you get this? This should be a great comfort. If you're saved, it's not you having to hold on to your salvation. The Bible clearly teaches that when a person believes in Christ Jesus, they are immediately receiving an eternal life. Now let's check that out. What is clearly taught in Scripture. Look at this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. This is the Apostle Peter. He says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter tells us that our salvation is secure because it's guarded by God's power through faith. 
And we know we didn't get the faith on our own. He gave us that faith. Does that somehow mean that life is now easy and perfect and that there are no more temptations and it's all uh, unicorns and bunnies and stuff? No more sin, no more temptation? No. And and in fact, that the pain that, that God allows into our life as we wrestle with the battles that we face, that our salvation is still being guarded by the power of God. Even the Apostle Paul confirms this same doctrine that Peter just espoused. Ephesians 1 verse 13 and 14. In him, Jesus, you also also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. When Paul says we are sealed by God with the promised Holy Spirit, how could that possibly mean then that our salvation is somehow at risk? Like the Holy Spirit's going, I can't handle it, can't handle this guy. Or how about this passage from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. But don't miss this. Anyone who hears my word and believes him, meaning God the Father, has eternal life. Not temporary life. Eternal life. Not life until you screw up too much. Eternal life. Your salvation is secure because it rests in him. And what does that mean? It means you will not come under judgment for your sins. Jesus has paid the debt you owe. Can I hear an amen? Amen. It's gone. Your slate's clean. Past, present, future sins. Not only that, if you believe, then you have been given the faith and given the righteousness of uh, of God, uh, the righteousness of Christ Jesus in God. So check this out. When God the Father looks upon your life, both in the past, the present, even in the future, God the Father sees the righteousness of the Son, Jesus. Now let's go back to Jesus' own words in John 5. The last verse in our verse in our main text today. Jesus says this in John 5, 24. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And will not come under judgment, but has, look, 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 passed from death to life. Praise God, if we believe, we have passed from death to life, and we're not facing judgment. And not only that, Jesus declares, you have passed from death to life. That's Jesus that has declared that. The judge. There's no further test to see if you're good enough for heaven and a relationship with with God. You're in, baby. Here's what I want you to walk away with. Here it is. When we talk about the doctrines of grace that we find in our study of Christ Jesus about himself, there is this huge comfort for us to realize that Jesus coming to earth to take on flesh didn't just make salvation possible 
for us. His life, death, and resurrection made salvation secure. Do you see the difference? Your salvation is in Christ, not in your ability to believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're humbled to see this. God, I'm just blown away. I've been studying this for weeks, for months, and and yet every time I read it, I'm, I'm so humbled to know that you pulled me out of death and sin and the lies of this world because you chose me, because you love me. And God, I'm so thankful I was able to, to choose you after you brought me to life. But God, I lift up my brothers and sisters right now that have come to that, that unconscious realization that this thing is real. And I, I just pray for conversion right now that, that they would come to the understanding now that they need to repent and follow you, Jesus. As you just continue to pray and attitude of prayer. If that's you, if, if this thing is real to you, that's not you. That's the Spirit of God waking you from the dead. Now, begin to follow Jesus. Starts with baptism, just an outward symbol of an inward change. Very important. We're going to do that in August. But listen, brothers and sisters in the faith, the the Christians hearing my words, those online, listen to me. All of us, we let sin seep in. Every day we wrestle with temptation and sin, right? We're forgiven of that sin. But if we wait and let sin build up in our lives, what happens to us? is not that our salvation goes away, but our relationship, our responsiveness to hearing God wanes. We're still saved. We're just not growing because we've taken ourselves and, and kind of shacked up with sin again instead of our loving Savior. So here's what we have to do. We have to say we repent it doesn't re-save us. You're not re-being saved. It's simply saying, I want to get right with you, God. It's a life of repentance. Every day, sometimes multiple times a day, you, the Holy Spirit points out, hey, you've got this thinking going wrong. Uh, uh, you know, stop it. Some of you folks have wrestled with pornography this week. You're saved, but stop it. Turn to Jesus. Let that stuff go. Some of you wrestled with lying this week. You're not even sure why you did. I know why you did. Just like pornography or gossip or, or lying or stealing. Whatever it is. It's because your, your old flesh, that body you live in, just like mine, still desires that stuff. You see, Satan can't steal your salvation. But what he can do is if you'll let him sneak in and live with a certain level of sin, he will take that relationship and kind of sideline you, keep you from becoming all that Jesus is calling you to become. So whatever it is, the Holy Spirit's already pointed it out. What is the sin you need to repent of? I I repented right before I got up. 
Mine was, I got, I got to be good for these people. I got to do this. I, I got to do, and I had to repent and go, Jesus, this is yours. Would you just speak through me? I, I'm no good at this. Would you just speak? Repent of that sin. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Jesus, we do repent. We do turn to you. May your Holy Spirit have full access in our life. It is in the name of the risen Savior, Christ Jesus, we all prayed and said, Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.